Nico Harbour, 17th December. Happy birthday, Dad. Often lauded as the most efficient, civilised and amicable Antarctic expedition in all history, the British Graham Land Expedition's origins lie in the 1931 British Arctic Air Route Expedition to Greenland, led by Henry Gino Watkins. See episode 86. Watkins mapped an idea to his colleagues that after their efforts finding a reliably navigable Great Circle route over the Arctic, they should sail south and sledge across Antarctica, stopping to climb Everest en route. No slouch, that man. After Watkins' death while hunting in his kayak, his idea stuck with John Rymill particularly. The Australian second, who took up the leader's mantle, spent his spare time finessing a plan to perform survey work in Graham Land, the focus of Watkins' unsuccessful 1931 expedition proposal. With the funding difficulties posed by the repercussions of stock market crashes in mind, Rymel devised a multi-year expedition operating with minimal external support, comprising sledge-based survey work along the as-yet unvisited stretches of Weddell Sea coasts, eventually reaching Snow Hill Island and awaiting collection at Nordenwald's Winter Quarters Hut. After completing their work in Greenland, Rymel discussed his ambitions with Frank Debenham and James Wordy, who saw merit in his ideas but figured they could garner more support than Rymel's proposal required and thereby achieve more for the time spent in the South. Wordy suggested the expedition take advantage of the channels sighted from the air by Wilkins to access the eastern side of Graham Land from Marguerite Bay on the western side, reaching further south into the Waddell Sea than Filchner or Shackleton managed without putting another ship at risk of freezing in or sinking in that difficult waterway. Marguerite Bay also offered scope to better examine the coasts of Chaco and Alexander Islands, and these three facets formed the basis of the finalised proposal taken to the Royal Geographical Society in May 1934. The Council immediately approved the plan, recognising the eminent competence of those involved and perceiving the goals as helpful to both geography and British interests in the South. The RGS kicked off the funding with a grant of £1,000, the nod from the RGS opened doors with the Colonial Office, which stumped up £10,000, and other parties interested in seeing British interests in the South bolstered by any means possible came up with another 9000 While the fundraising gradually brought together the money, Rymel began assembling his team. Wilfred Edward Hampton, who took care of the de Havilland DH-60 Moth biplanes in Greenland, keeping them flying in spite of damage caused by regular gales, chucked his job at Vickers Armstrong's Limited an engineering firm about to make its mark in aviation history with Barnes-Wallace's geodetic-framed Wellington bomber, to sign on as second-in-command and chief pilot. Quinton Riley resumed the meteorological role he filled in the Arctic, as well as taking charge of stores and boats, his own vessel, Stella Polaris, coming on roster as motor launch. Alfred Stevenson, fresh off a year at Fort Ray in northern Canada as part of the British Polar Year Party, would lead the surveying and the meteorology. With permission from the Royal Navy, Lieutenant Commander Edward William Bingham once more provided medical support to his Greenland colleagues. He sledged south from Labrador, where the HMS Challenger spent the northern winter to join Rymel's new project. On that note, it's worth paying some attention to the British attitude to using sled dogs after the heroic era. With Sir Clements Markham dead for the better part of two decades, the tremendous handbrake his prejudices placed on British tractive efforts at high latitudes gradually eased. British Arctic, and subsequently Antarctic, dog drivers became proficient at, and then excelled at, canine-powered travel.
Rymel's expedition marked the first British foray to bring this new enthusiasm for and expertise in dog sledging to Antarctica, and the mode spread among subsequent British expeditions, though there were some holdouts in the Markham camp, as we'll address in episodes about Operation Tabarin. Britain could have jumped on that bus a lot earlier, but they certainly didn't slouch in honing the craft once it was deemed sufficiently in line with self-perceptions of British manliness. Today, the Carpenter's Workshop at Base W, Datai Island, bears witness to the care and industry put into the maintenance of sledges, and the kennels, while small and spartan, have stood up to six decades of Antarctic winters because dogs became part of the team rather than troublesome accessories, and warranted more and better care than previous British expeditions afforded them. Bird's rhetoric about the days of the old school coming to an end with the coming of the aeroplane to Antarctica were correct, but the change came much slower than anyone speculating on such matters deemed likely, and speaking to those who spent time with dogs in Antarctica draws almost the same level of envy from me as I once felt in talking to people who'd travelled to Antarctica. The British Antarctic Survey training film on how to best make use of a dog team is both highly instructive and a time capsule of British Britishness from the mid-20th century and I could watch it and nothing else for the rest of my life and feel well served in my televisual consumption. Newcomers to Rymel's team included the Reverend William Launcelot Scott Fleming of Trinity Hall, Cambridge, a veteran of two geological expeditions in the Arctic, who joined as chief scientist and geologist and chaplain because cake or death. Brian Burley Roberts, with two Arctic summers under his belt leading birding surveys, chucked a planned expedition to Baffin Island and came aboard as ornithologist. James Inglis Moore, whose high-latitude experience comprised a summer expedition to Spitsbergen, joined as second engineer and assistant surveyor. Lieutenant Ian Forbes Meeklejohn of the Royal Corps of Signals joined as radio operator. Rommel underwent the customary networking, seeking donations of equipment and consumables from businesses. Seeking to keep costs down, Rymel selected a sail-powered vessel, a French-built bluff-bowed fishing schooner purchased for £3,000, and while the Panola, renamed after Rymel's home in South Australia, featured two 50-horsepower Junkers diesel auxiliary engines, they only propelled the vessel for a third of the near 27,000 nautical miles the expedition eventually covered, and only a ninth of that without sail supplementing their horsepower. Setting the expedition specialists to task as amateur seamen further cut financial costs, though it carried its own price, as the crew needed to work up to something approaching competence in the early stages of the voyage under the guidance of the small complement of professional mariners. Royal Navy Lieutenant Robert Edward Dudley Ryder signed on as ship's captain, and Royal Navy Lieutenant Commander Henry Mannering Millet, already accustomed to the Panola's diesel engines from his time working on the same units in the Royal Navy submarine fleet, joined as chief engineer. James Hamilton Lofty, Martin, previously of Mawson's Banzari voyages and highly regarded in Cambridge polar circles, and who put aside his own less advanced Antarctic plans to support Rymel's scheme, joined his first mate. Lieutenant Ryder's older brother, Captain Lyle Charles Dudley Ryder, of the Royal Norfolk Regiments, joined as second mate and ship's carpenter. Norman Gurney as able seaman, and George Colin Lauder Bertram as biologist and apprentice seaman. The Panola underwent minor hull modifications to strengthen it against ice pressure, though no one expected it to withstand much but the most glancing of blows, and in lieu of replacing the twin diesel setup with something more powerful and less prone to ice damage than having the twin screws sticking out into the space where the ice was most likely to tear them off, received some steel prop guards, though these weren't fitted for the transit south, to decrease the drag coefficient of the hull.
While unable to afford more powerful and more fuel-efficient replacement engines, Rommel did change the engine oiling system to improve their reliability. One aspect of ice preparation Rymel mentions, which I never encountered in accounts of expeditions prior to the BGLE, is the use of graphite as a lubricant in the running gear to prevent blocks seizing up as the grease normally used in these pulleys freezes. Nice one. Rymel read the reports by, and then consulted in person, Jean-Baptiste Charcot. The French explorer's experiences at Port Charcot and Port Circumcision which I now know he named such because the Pourquoi Pa arrived there on New Year's Day, which the Roman Catholic calendar notes as the day Jesus was circumcised, gave Rymel some idea as to where he might establish winter quarters, and the tandem groundings the Francais and the Pourquoi Pa experienced off Cape Tuxum gave him some valuable hindsight about operating in uncharted waters. I should note at this point that I too have gone aground off Cape Tuxum, about five metres off it, where Charcot tore away the false keel of the Francais. I chipped the propeller of my Zodiac, so it was a lot less dramatic, and while any vessel going aground represents an error of judgement on the behalf of the person in charge of it, I do like that I have the Cape Tuxen experience in common with one of the Antarctic explorers I admire most. Restricted funds restricted the airframe selection, but familiarity with and experience of the de Havilland moth family in the north saw a de Havilland fox moth selected. The fox moth is similar to the tiger moth tandem seat trainer, the space where the trainee pilot would normally go being expanded into a passenger cabin. It could operate from floats or skis. The wood and doped canvas construction allowed ready repairs without the need to carry a large stock of airframe spares in various sizes, and the folding wings allowed ready storage. Depending on immediate needs, Rymel turned the passenger space to either survey camera equipment and operator, or an auxiliary fuel tank, doubling the aircraft's range. Modifications for cold operations included plywood leading edges on the lower wings to prevent ice thrown up by the propeller piercing the wing fabric and continuous carburetor heating, a feature normally only used when low revs reduce the temperature around the engine enough that ice can start forming in the carburetor's venturi and which under normal conditions is used sparingly to preclude cylinder head detonation and to decrease the likelihood of debris entering the engine from the extra mechanisms the inducted air has to pass through. While the expedition did take a tractor south for hauling heavy loads, Rymel placed his ground transport ambitions largely in the paws of dogs, deeming the advantages of motorised transport outweighed by the canine ability to work up mountain ranges and across broken sea ice that would leave tractors or adapted cars spinning their wheels and then sinking out of sight with a sad glub-glub noise. Chapman headed to Greenland and procured 65 huskies, but Distemper killed all but 15 of these during the first sea transit. 34 Labrador, the place, not the breed, replacements, came aboard, but the agent tasked with sourcing the animals at short notice provided a mixed bag of strong and weak animals, some breeding-age bitches and some worn-out examples that died of old age in their traces. Already experienced at dog driving but uncertain what conditions they might face, Rymel took south sufficient materials to rig his dog teams in any of four possible configurations he saw in use in the north. The BGLE modified the basic Nansen sledge, resulting in a version light enough for carriage, when empty, by a single person, but strong enough for use on rough and broken sea ice, setting the pattern for subsequent British sledging efforts until the cessation of dog-based operations in Antarctica. At least one sledge in each party led a sledge meter wheel, reading off the distance travelled in miles and tenths of miles. This sledge usually also carried an Air Ministry P4 aperiodic compass between the handlebars. 
An aperiodic compass dampens the oscillations experienced by a simple magnetic compass by placing a pendulum load beneath the pivot, and by keeping the magnets short and near the tip of the arm, and by flooding the entire mechanism in as viscous a fluid as will still allow the internal parts to move. Designed to alleviate the worst of the acceleration-based deflections imposed on a compass in a manoeuvring combat aircraft, these deadbeat compasses held their reading as a sledge crossed badly broken surfaces. Deviations imposed on the aperiodic compasses by the constantly changing sled loads didn't matter, as the P4 simply acted as a means to hold a heading established by the driver standing clear of the sledge and fixing a bearing on a destination using a prismatic compass. Hello. As with the introduction and outro to episode 92, I'm not in Antarctica and I'm not pretending to be in Antarctica for this reading. I'm in Gary Word, the Grampians National Park, Western Victoria, part of the Wimmera, Chaparong country. And the reason I'm recording here is to sow the seeds for myself more than anything else. The idea that I'm not going to follow through on a mooted plan to learn Inuit folk tales and family histories and the history of the far north. I floated that idea with some colleagues in the Antarctic tourism industry as a prelude to getting to know Arctic history that I could then lecture about on voyages into the north. And that still has a lot of appeal. My exposure to Inuit history is very limited. I, I spent half a day at the cultural centre in Nook in Greenland, and I've travelled with Wayne Broomfield, who is an elder of his tribe in Labrador. And I still want to follow through on reading about and speaking to people about and getting to know that history. But I don't think there's enough time left for me to get to know it well enough that I would be comfortable speaking about it to other people, let alone layering European discoveries and adventures and exploration on top of that. I've spoken glancingly about Arctic exploration where events after European incursions into the North helped flesh out what carried forth in the Antarctic with particular characters and technology working their way south after being tested or educated in the north. But it would take a lot more experience and understanding to speak to those topics with any sort of cultural sensitivity. And as I said before, I don't think I've got enough time left for that. Because I'm setting myself the task of getting to know the story of my own land. I recently said goodbye to a friend who's moving back to Sydney and her phrasing about moving back to the sandstone country that feels like home left me feeling a bit envious that I don't feel that sense of place myself. I spent most of my life in Australia but I feel that I know the story of New Zealand far better even though I only spent six years there. The, the story of New Zealand is spoken more readily than the true history of Australia. I was part of the first cohort of Australian schoolchildren to be taught Australian history instead of just a list of kings and queens of England to memorise. 
and our understanding at the time of Indigenous Australia featured in that curriculum, but I think it was a very shadowy understanding. The books that I've read since then paint a picture of attempted genocide and sustained warfare against Indigenous Australia by the invading Europeans. And that's an uncomfortable topic, but I think it warrants my attention before I go trying to understand anyone else's land. The book Dark Emu sets the scene for the current journey, which sees me in Garryword, following up the archaeology mapped out in Dark Emu, looking to see the history of Indigenous Australia, not as hunter-gatherers, but as people cultivating and farming a landscape that is very much averse to being tamed. And I don't know if there's enough time for that, but it's a journey I think is well worth taking, particularly for my children who are growing up with African-American heritage. They are black in a deeply racist and ignorant Australia. And if for nothing else, then for their sake, I want to understand the history of the land that I grew up in. But there's also the very good reason that setting out on that journey, seeking that understanding, would very much annoy my brother-in-law Trevor. And given he's my yardstick of the inverse of everything that is correct and good, anything that annoys him has got to be the right thing to do. So with that all out of the way, I'm going to launch back into the story of the British Graham Land expedition while sitting in a dry sclerophyll forest that was burnt five and a half years ago in bushfires within the Grampians on a rock as the sun sets and a gentle rain will fall. The Panola departed London on the 10th of September carrying 12 expedition members and a Falkland Islander working their passage home as Cook. Two other expedition members already made their way to the Falklands while Bingham lagged behind to take possession of and to transport the dogs from Labrador. The deck space, littered with the usual array of unusual materials and stores polar voyagers carried, also served as home for some chickens, two wiener pigs and two Greenland huskies used by Watkins in the north, which the London Zoo didn't really want. The ship's officers set watch and watch rosters, and the routine of sailing a heavily laden vessel down the Atlantic kicked off. Rymill blames the ice alterations for the poor sailing qualities the Panola displayed, the ship proving unwilling to tack through the eye of the wind when carrying full sail over any direction of swell, even with motor assistance occasionally forcing some very uncomfortable jibing to prevent the whole expedition ending up on a lee shore. The sails could provide three and a half to four knot cruising, while the engines could push along at six knots, when they weren't misaligned to the point of placing the hull in danger of damage from their operation. The Panola made brief stops for fuel and freshies in Madeira and Montevideo, finding Bingham and his canine charges, 32 of his dogs from Labrador and the 15 survivors of the original Greenland intake, already departed from the latter for the Falklands. The arrangement for keeping the dogs offshore from the city aboard a lighter due to quarantine restrictions prompting his early departure. 
During his time at sea with his charges, Bingham came to recognise which dogs sought the company and protection of which others. The family and team units arising as an equilibrium between threats and solidarity against threats, though the team leaders didn't yet emerge. In the Falklands, the Antarctic hardened crews of the Discovery 2 and the HMS Exeter helped set the Panola's rig to better suit ice operations, lowering the masts and shortening the bowsprit to set the bow higher, the stern lower, and decreasing the overall windage, the cross-sectional surface area a ship presents to winds from a beam, affecting a ship's ability to hold to a given track. While largely irrelevant in open waters, windage is important when working close to the shore, where adverse winds might push a vessel onto a lee shore, in spite of what's done with the sails. The engineers also found the engine beds, laid of unseasoned wood, warped during their transit through the tropics, and put the propeller shafts out of true. Much work with wedges and shims ironed out the worst of the kinks for a while, but the problem sustained through the first year of the expedition. The visit to Stanley also marked the first appearance of Duncan Cass in the Ice Coffee narrative. This boarding school boy with an Etonian cadence joined the Discovery 2 in England, working up from deck boy to able seaman under Captain Nelson, who allowed the young sailor to join the Panola, upping the seamanship quotient aboard by a substantial margin. Captain Nelson carried Bingham, Hampton and the expedition dogs and the bulk of the equipment south to Port Lockroy aboard the Discovery 2, while the Panola underwent its repairs, allowing the BGLE a Drake Passage crossing free of the overloading concerns that plagued most previous small enterprises in the far south. And a good thing too, as big seas knocked the Panola on its ass right off the bat when they sailed out of Stanley, throwing the engines out of alignment again and seeing the small ship limp into Port Harriet, the next inlet south of the capital. Rymel and Ryder conferred, deciding to sail the Drake without auxiliary motive power and to work on the engine mounts once at Port Lockroy, rather than delay in Port Harriet, waiting for the concrete, proposed as a last gasp engine alignment solution, to cure, and missing what might prove to be the final weather window open to them, making their start that season. They departed Port Harriet on the 7th of January, the prevailing westerlies carrying them 900 nautical miles to the South Shetlands on the 21st of January, and Port Lockroy on the 22nd. Meanwhile, the dogs had their own adventures in the crossing under Captain Nelson. The pens made over the forecastle didn't contain the animals particularly well, and wet dogs kept turning up in odd spots around the ship. Hampton and Bingham periodically being asked to remove an unhappily soggy canine from the berths. The Discovery 2 initially couldn't reach Port Lockroy, and Hampton and Bingham instead put ashore with the dogs at Whalers Bay, Deception Island, while the ship carried on with its survey work. They used the buildings of the former Hectoria whaling station as accommodation, and hunted up and preserved a cache of 60 seals to keep the dogs in food through the coming winter. The Discovery 2 returned on the 19th of January to shuttle the ensemble to Port Lockroy in time to meet the Panola, and Hampton and Bingham were brewing up as the boat sailed into the bay and anchored, the noise of the Primus stove and 40-odd dogs preventing their hearing their companions arriving. A hot cuppa and warm greetings. The ultimate combination. Hold me to that standard when you turn up in my camp. Short on time before the straits froze, but unwilling to risk sailing into the southern Graham land waters without auxiliary power, Rymel decided to establish winter quarters further north than originally anticipated. Hampton had the Foxmoth rigged and test flown on the 27th of January, and Rymel and Ryder flew at 50 miles south along the mainland coast to seek a suitable site for their base.
The mainland only offered glacial outlets or bare rock too steep to afford landings, and the pair instead selected the Argentine Islands, six miles off Cape Tuxen, confident, based on Charcot's advice, that the intervening waters would freeze solid enough to allow sledging parties to work to the mainland through the colder months. Rymel flew low on the return to Port Lockroy to allow Ryder the opportunity to spot and mud map submerged reefs for the transit south aboard the Panola. Aircraft. Is there anything they can't do? Well, according to Rymel, accurately fixing the locations of those submerged reefs was one thing they couldn't do, and he and Riley and Ryder repeated the aerial track the following day in the motor launch, ground-truthing the positions of the submerged reefs and sounding the approaches and inlets of the Argentine islands, this being the systematic approach to exploration they learnt in Greenland. This overfly, sound and only then sail mode was applied in all subsequent movements of the Panola. As estimated from the air, the islands offered sheltered waters deep enough for the Panola to operate without hindrance, and a flat expanse suitable for their buildings. The short transit from Port Lockroy to the Argentine Islands meant the Panola could shuttle equipment and stores, and the dogs, as separate loads, nulling the need to carefully stow everything at once. The relocation proceeded in similarly careful stages to the route finding, seeing everyone and everything at the Argentine Islands on the 14th of February, poor weather delaying the first movement of the Foxmoth, and then that of the Panola on its second foray. Once unloaded, the sailing contingent prepped the Panola for winter. The engine beds received their concreting, no doubt an embuggerance of the first order for anyone trying to replace the engines after the expedition, but necessary, given the resources and facilities to hand, to keep the machinery as close to true as possible. The surveyors and scientists began working on erecting the prefabricated buildings, kicking off their data gathering in any time not dedicated to hammer wielding. Meteorologist Stevenson got the Stevenson screen up and operating in a manner most satisfying to those of us with an ear for linguistic symmetries. The by this time ubiquitous prefabricated winter quarters comprised a two-room space, the first multi-storey structure established in Antarctica. Sleeping quarters with nine berths, a table and seven folding chairs and a petrol-powered heating unit were set above a combined galley, mess, workshop. The lower ensemble heated by an Arga stove and insulated with asbestos and reflective aluminium sheeting. A steeply pitched roof kept snow from accumulating and offered a loft for cold perishable stores and rarely used equipment. Writing in Southern Lights, John Rymel characterised why this building is often cited as the most civilised winter quarters of any expedition to date, and more convivial than many that came after. Same forest, different day. All the odd expedition equipment, such as small boat tackle, ice chisels and heavy outdoor clothing, which usually finds its way into the living room, adding greatly to the discomfort of the occupants, could be kept downstairs. This made it possible to keep the upstairs room clean and tidy, with plenty of space for everyone, while the blue tablecloth, curtains and strips of carpet on the floor gave a cheerful and bright appearance. In fact, when sitting in front of the stove after dinner with a good book, it was easy to forget that one was in the Antarctic at all. Reconnaissance flights revealed the coast of Graham Land too steep to allow sledging teams access to the central plateau, and Rymel resigned himself to explorations west of the peninsula until the next summer allowed the Panola to reach further south. 
The wintering party formulated plans for sledging forays as soon as the sea ice reached a reliable thickness. The first goal being establishing a landing ground for the Foxmoth at the northern end of Adelaide Island, from which to resupply subsequent sledge teams, thereby allowing access further south to Jenny Island, Marguerite Bay and the unseen coasts beyond, laying safety depots and surveying as per their mode in Greenland. While waiting for the sea ice to form and consolidate, the team laid in a seal cache, depoted supplies among the Berthelow Islands by boat, and kicked off the meteorological program and other scientific investigations at sites the boat could reach and return from in a day, there being no known reliably sheltered harbour further south at that date. As with previous expeditions not driven to ignore their taste buds and mouthfeel by all-consuming hunger, they found crab-eater seals the superior meat, laying in 90 carcasses in a snow cave on Winter Island, earmarked for human consumption where the dogs got the less palatable Waddell meat. Even the dogs turned up their noses at leopard seal meat. As the ice between the Argentine islands grew thicker, the dog teams began working up. The team leaders, those smartest and most willing to pull, and wheel dogs, the dumbest and laziest, being kept nearest the sledge where the driver could keep an eye on them, and reached them with the 22-foot stock whip most readily, coming to light as the drivers put their charges to task. With a number of elderly and weak dogs already among the canine pack, Bingham began Antarctica's first targeted dog breeding program, seeking to emphasise helpful traits by heeding who came in heat when and isolating couples until confident of a successful pregnancy. Dog crates comprising packing plywood and wire went up around the winter quarters to give the dog team shelter, and whelping boxes, high enough to keep the puppies in but low enough for the bitches to jump over, gave nursing mothers a break between feeds. Powdered milk weaned the pups in their transition to corn meals and seal meat mash, and adolescents saw them on the same seal meat chunk diet as their elders. Eight families comprising 45 puppies gave the BGLE some of the best hauling dogs yet seen in Antarctica. Bingham's attentive management of and appreciation for his charges shines bright in a paragraph I'll quote wholesale from Southern Lights. To give an example of the vitality of these animals, one morning on going around the pens, I discovered a wretched pup, only two or three days old, which had been ousted by the others. It was behind the mother, who was unconcernedly lying on it. When I lifted it up, it was almost stiff, had a decidedly flattened appearance, was apparently not breathing, and stone cold. After some minutes warming over the stove in the house and mouth-to-mouth -mouth artificial respiration, it produced a squeak. Later, it returned to a more rounded shape, and finally took a few drops of milk from a fountain pen filler. After two days care in the house, having fed from a bottle and spent the night in bed with its foster father, it was returned to its mother and thrived so successfully that it eventually completed the southern journey in 1936, being a very useful member of its team. Straying puppies usually turned up back at winter quarters after a roam and an attempt at hunting, but treacherous ice saw several permanent disappearances. Bingham figuring the dogs tried to reach seals on ice that couldn't support their less distributed weight, and the slush didn't allow them to climb back ashore. Inveterate wanderers required chaining up, but the solution wasn't applied universally, as Bingham found the chains problematic. The cold made the steel brittle, and strong dogs could break surprisingly thick links. 
Swivels jammed with frozen moisture, and any dog meandering around a stake in one direction could strangle itself as the links worked into a tightening knot. Two dogs died in this manner, in spite of morning and evening check rounds and standing orders that anyone seeing a tangled chain at any time should help the animal out. In cold months, the dogs took their water as snow, but when the snow gave way to shingle, they required regular watering. Their habit of tipping the water dishes over as a form of entertainment, making this a considerable task for those melting the requisite supplies and serving it up. Puppies began training to harness at six months, joining a stable team and running on a trace next to their mother. Some took to it quickly, and others required considerable patience to keep them from lying down in the snow or running under the sledge, but all puppies that survived their early months got the hang of sledging. Bingham's drivers used rope harnesses for local work, but longer sledging journeys saw more expensive and more comfortable bespoke lampwick harnesses worked up, two sets per individual dog. Coloured braid and tags identified which harness belonged to which dog, and Bingham alleges the addition of small bells cheered the dogs up and saw them make better pace, though I don't know if he tested the idea against a silent control sledge team. Tarred hemp rope prevented the dogs eating the main traces. The winter flights kicked off on the 4th of August, the ice finally able to support the fox moth taking off on skis. Hampton and Rymill flew a reconnaissance south to Bear Scotia Bay, happy to see ice forming among the Bisco Islands. Poor weather prevented sledging until the 18th, at which three sledging parties departed the Argentine Islands. Ryder and Rymill to establish the 50 mile depot and emergency landing ground, Bingham, Martin and Moore to establish the landing ground at the northern end of Adelaide Island, and Stevenson, Fleming, Bertram and Millet heading to Bear Scotia Bay to collect survey data and to geologise. Approaching the Berthelow Islands, they found the ice thin and applied, for the first time I'm aware of in Antarctica, the Greenland Inuit practice of testing each footfall with an ice chisel. A six-foot ash pole with a metal head was used to gauge the ice thickness and strength before anyone skied over it, let alone led a fully laden sledge team across it. There's no hard and fast rules I can find to interpreting the reactions the ice chisel elicits from a surface, so the most experienced operators took the lead, applying their hard-won yards at gauging the surface, taking into account how long it stood in place, how quickly it formed, the likely currents running below it, and the effects of sun warming above it. Several dogs went through at the thinnest points, but the teams reached Bear Scotia Bay the following day, where the survey party set up base camp from which to operate over the following weeks. The two parties heading further south experienced some trouble off the coast of Chavez Island, where ice falling from the glaciers and steep cliffs regularly broke up the recently formed sea ice, leaving a large open lead between the island and the mainland. This is, to my knowledge, the first time the grade of the local geography held sway over sea ice operations, as Antarctic sledging parties, to this date mostly approaching on the other side of the continent, where the mountains make less precipitous descents to sea level, didn't need to factor drop stones and falling ice blocks into their track. On the upside, operating entirely on sea ice meant these early BGLE sledging forays didn't need to factor crevasses into their navigation. At the 50 mile site, Rymel swapped the teams around. Poor circulation in Moore's feet led to frost nip, so Bingham carried on south with Ryder, while Rymel, Moore and Martin marked out the emergency landing site before turning north with Moore riding the sledge to ease the pain in his injured feet.
this trio reunited with Stevenson's survey party as they wound up their work in Scotia Bay, and both teams returned to the Argentine Islands on the 24th of May. Meanwhile, Bingham and Ryder experienced difficulty in their attempts to reach Adelaide Island, open water blocking their progress other than directly adjacent to the peninsula coast, an option only taken after examining every possible path to seaward, as Bingham didn't want to sledge in the shadows of the steep, boulder-dropping mountains on the crappy, salty, high-friction coefficient young ice that reforms around the headlands after the local currents cause a breakout. Hampton and Rymill flew south in the Foxmoth at the earliest opportunity the weather gave, the 26th, and made a landing on the airfield marked out for them, Bingham adding a marker indicating the wind direction and strength at ground as they overflew the site several times to choose their line. With ground and air observations indicating a strong current in the Pendleton Strait, preventing firm ice forming, Rymel and Bingham concluded that working further south lay out of the question that season. Instead, Ryder and Bingham would head north and survey the coast and islands, meeting a party comprising Rymel, Stevenson and Fleming, surveying their way south. Hampton made the return flight to deliver a radio to the southern pair, increasing the precision of their surveying by allowing them access to the Buenos Aires time signal and thereby giving their astronomical measurements a firm footing. The parties used these astronomical fixes as their basis for the vertical and horizontal theodolite data and used plane tables to fill in blanks between the more detailed station data. Over the course of two weeks, maps of 70 miles of coast and outlying islands gradually arose from the accumulating measurements. The dog teams worked well and the ample supply of seals available along the ice margins kept them better fed than those expected to pull the sledge parties of the past across the Ross Ice Barrier. With the ice unworkable, the expedition team settled into the Argentine island routines. Meteorology, cartography, geology and a study of the biology of the local birds, all but one of the Argentine islands were deemed wildlife sanctuaries, with eggs and birds being collected from only one island, separate to Winter Island. The Panola's crew built a scow they named the Mock Turtle for use from the ship when they departed north and left Riley's motor launch, the Stella Polaris, with the expedition. By mid-December, open water around the islands offered an opportunity to send the Panola south. That is, once the expedition members cut a channel out from the Panola's anchorage with the ice source. Nothing's easy in Antarctica. The Panola headed to Deception Island to collect mail and building materials. The hut at Winter Island, cosy and sturdy as it was, experienced a lot of damp conditions and the wood framing swelled to the point they couldn't dismantle the structure without damaging much of the timber. During their time at Deception Island with the dogs the previous summer, Hampton and Bingham made an inventory of the timber held in storage at the whaling station. These notes allowed Hampton to design a new house for the expedition's second winter quarters and to make up a shopping list for the Panola crew when they got to Deception Island. Rymel doesn't note in his account that this constituted theft, as Sir Hubert Wilkins perceived it, but as a matter of urgent pragmatism, though being British he didn't leave an IOU or otherwise indicate he recognised the timber as belonging to anyone other than whoever stood at hand. See the case Finders Keepers v Losers Weepers. The Panola departed the Argentine Islands on the 3rd of January and spent two weeks in Whalers Bay. While others got on with filling Hampton's timber shopping list, Millet and Moore got the machine shop operational and fabricated replacement parts for machinery worn out through the winter. The Panola got moving again on the 24th, 
arriving back at the Argentines on the 27th after delays caused by headwinds and opportunistic surveying and sounding. While waiting for the ship's return, Rymel led Stevenson and Fleming into Graham Land to see if they could find a route to the Polar Plateau in that direction. Precipitous climbs and crevasses retarded their progress and while Rymel did sight a potential path to his goal, he didn't want to risk dogs and sledges in reaching the foot of the steep climb that caught his eye. Lincoln Ellsworth's re-sighting of Stephenson Strait, relayed to the BGLE by Wilkins the previous summer, while the Wyatt Earp lay in the lee at Dundee Island, still made a southern waterway approach to the interior seem the best and easiest bet. With the timber ashore at Winter Island, Hampton set people to work sawing and adzing to the cutting list for his new hut design. Poor weather held flying off until the 11th of February, when Hampton took Ryder south to scout the best possible route to take the Panola. The cloud base lowered until the fox moth held level with the tops of the taller icebergs, at which Hampton pulled the pin. Another flight on the 16th saw Hampton and Ryder reach the Pendleton Strait, Ryder returning with a plan for a sledging route and detailed aerial sketches of the islands that the surveyors gathered data from in the August and September sledge journeys. That same day, the Panola, loaded with all but the fox moth, back on its floats once more, and the dory and a small party to manage them, departed the Argentine islands. In a tense dance with the ice that Riley later noted as the most daunting moments spent aboard his vessel, the Stella Polaris acted as tug to get the Panola out of its lagoon and then preceded it south to make soundings on the uncharted areas Ryder wanted to transit through. The newly made scow served to bring the 76 dogs aboard at the last possible moment to ease the stresses on the canines and the humans having to share deck space with them. Rymel wanted to anchor in an inlet between the Leone Islands, first mapped by Charcot. The French visit occurred by sledge during winter, so the maps arising from Charcot's expedition couldn't tell Ryder anything about the depths to expect, but the Stella went ahead and found sufficient water. Too much, in fact. When Rymel and Cass tried setting a mooring for the fox moth, the 40-gallon drum half full of rocks got away from them and the attached buoy disappeared into the depths. Setting moorings seems straightforward, but the number of times I've seen it go wrong makes me loathe to have anything to do with it, particularly when the numpties expect me to work underwater and position the weight while they suspend it, usually inadequately, from too small a boat. Even throwing a mooring from the surface involves too much fast-moving chain pulling at the gunnels for me to enjoy, and I'm surprised moorings don't feature as a cause of maiming and death in the annual sea safety digests more often than they do. With the ship heavily laden and the channel between Adelaide Island and the mainland blocked by the ice, the Panola waited out poor weather in the lagoon for several days, transiting down the seaward side of Adelaide Island in a heavy swell. All the dogs seasick and the ship heaved to through the summer twilight between 2100 and 0300 to avoid running into growlers made invisible in the low angle light. They arrived at their archipelago goal on the 22nd and once more the Stella leadlined the way to a safe anchorage. It took some time to find, with many of the inter-island channels too deep for the Panola's warps. Others featured shallow sills, as per fjord mouths, that precluded entry. The Stella finally found a lagoon with a sill deep enough for the Panola's keel at high tide, and with just enough space for the Panola to manoeuvre, so long as the Stella stood by ready to act as tug. 
Long time ago, I spent my Sundays in Tauranga, driving a small motorboat around a marina, acting as a tug for the larger cabin cruisers, trying to park up against a strong current. And I was really impressed by the difference a small and nimble craft can make on the movements of a larger vessel, even with very little power. And then, in 2018, my friend Jazz got me aboard a Botany Bay tug, helmed by a Dutch master mariner approaching retirement. And the finesse with which he danced that large machine around even larger machines, put the brakes on for them, helped them turn sharp corners and put them on their wharf with a deft touch, stands as one of the most impressive displays of seamanship I've ever witnessed. There's no Antarctic component here, just digressive reminiscences about tugboats being awesome. In a digression on a digression, I encountered a tiger snake in my yard when I was hanging out laundry between stints spent writing this script. A youngster, about half a metre long and with its markings most vibrant after a recent molt, this urban wildlife encounter made my day. It was still there as I wrote on, the wagtails going nuts over the boundary fence. I relocated to the back porch to work and keep an eye to see if it transited westward as I have neighbours who are less enthusiastic about snakes and who would value any news I could offer them about snake movements. No reptiles in Antarctica and that's one of the very few shortcomings of that continent in my eyes. I'll post a picture of the snake to the blog and the Facebook account because snakes are cool. And speaking of Australian fauna there's actually a couple of emus kicking around the periphery out here in the forest. Impressively nimble for such large birds. The younger rider took to the crow's nest to direct the mooring operations using flags to communicate. One set for the helm, one for the engine room, relayed to the hull from the hatch, another set to the stella, and a fourth set for Martin up forward, managing the anchors. Nice. Must have taken some coordination to get that lot to run smooth. And I suspect rider was good at running a toolbox meeting and getting everyone on the same page before attempting a complex operation. There's a number of people in my life could benefit from his example. Hampton and Stevenson boarded up the Argentine island's hut and beached the scow on receiving word of the Panola's arrival at its destination from Micklejohn. They loaded their effects into the fox moth, fueled up, and after two non-starter attempts at taking off, got flying south. So many accounts of early Antarctic flying from the water involve the aircraft getting airborne at the last minute, and I don't think the aircrew recounting those matters were gilding the lily. The fox moth was far heavier than its moth ancestor, but didn't receive a commensurate increase in the horsepower urging it skyward, and with full fuel tanks, a passenger, and two kit bags in the hold, and floats adding drag and weight, its performance stats likely made Bird's Curtis Condor seem something of a whippet. Stevenson sketched coastlines as they made their way south, and the fox moth landed among the Leone Islands in the mid-afternoon, taking to its mooring through the tugboat ministrations of the Stella Polaris. On the 27th, Hampton and Rymill flew south to seek a winter quarters site. 30 miles south of Charcot's furthest extent, they observed the ice breaking out of Marguerite Bay and spotted a chain of islands, later named the Debenhams, featuring shingled beaches likely to serve well as a base site in the Nini Fjord. A geological feature they named Red Rock Ridge marked the furthest extent they thought the Panola could breach in the present ice conditions. What Sir Hubert Wilkins recorded during his flights with Ben Eilson in the Lockheed Vega as islands 
hemmed by a series of channels, turned out to be unbroken mountain ranges to their east. The easy, sea-level path to the Weddell Sea, Sir Hubert's 1928-1929 published geographic findings promised, did not exist. Hampton flew Rymel north and returned with Ryder to give the mariner a bird's-eye view of the path he would need to thread the Banola through. Once more, the ship preceded the Foxmoth and the Stella preceded the ship. By this time, the smaller vessel carrying a Lucas sounding machine to spare the shoulders and forearms of the prospectors. The inlet nearest the selected winter quarters beach, just large enough to moor the Panola, experienced strong currents and the periodic problem of current-borne ice striking the ship's stern saw an anchor watch set and unloading kicked off at the hurry-up. Rymill experienced severe sciatica, the same complaint that periodically laid Shackleton out, and with their leader bedridden and Bertram and Riley concerned with hunting in a large enough cache of seals using the Stella Polaris to see them and their dogs right through the winter, the remaining expedition members did a stellar job getting all hut materials and stalls ashore in four and a half days. On the 5th of March, Hampton commenced construction of his pre-cut hut. The hunting party, working out to 10 miles in all directions, only killed 25 Waddell seals, butchered and stored on an island out of reach of any dog that pulled its stake, after which the Stella came ashore for the winter, foreshadowing a season of short rations for men and dogs. Alternating periods of low clouds and choppy waters kept the fox moth from flying until the 11th of March, when a reconnaissance flight south showed the Panola still couldn't push further than the Red Rock Ridge, precluding a foray to establish a sledging depot from the water and thereby decreasing the pressure to relay in the subsequent sledging operations by boat. On the 12th, the Panola made ready for the transit to Stanley while Hampton gave joy flights to those who hadn't yet flown but wanted to, reminding me of much-loved and respected operators who let me get to Cape Evans, Cape Royds and Cave Cove, in spite of these sites lying outside our areas of interest at the time. The shore party stood the final anchor watches to ensure the Panola's crew got a sound sleep before throwing off lines early on the 13th. Recurrent bouts of symptoms akin to appendicitis plagued Roberts through the first year in the Antarctic, and pushed Rymel to order the Panola spend the winter of 1936 in Stanley, so if Roberts did require surgery, he stood a half-decent chance of surviving it. Bertram swapped berths with Roberts, taking his place among the shore party. The Stella Polaris acted as tug once more, as the Panola manoeuvred out of a maze of recently arrived icebergs. That'll do for tonight, as the light's failing. Signing off episode 96 with greetings to Dick Smith. Dick Smith was an Australian entrepreneur in electronics and played a role in my childhood in that his expeditions to Antarctica were well publicised and documented and turned up on my television set and in the cards that I used to get with my wheat picks. So from an early age, I was aware that he had a place in Antarctic history. I wrote to him recently to ask for some images of the aircraft that he operated in Antarctica. He flew the first twin otter between Australia and Antarctica, the first continental flight of its nature between the Australian mainland and the Antarctic continent. And he also operated his jet ranger in the far south. And he responded, I, I got the images that I wanted for the project that I'm working on with Joe Maxwell. 
And it's exactly the sort of response you'd hope to get from someone that played such a big role in my early thinking about Antarctica. He's the nearest thing Australia's got to a Hubert Wilkins these days. So I'm really grateful. Greetings also to Peter Rymill, son of John Rymill, who's featured so heavily in this episode and episode 86, which featured the work in Greenland with Gino Watkins. John Rymill will feature again in episode 97, and I think I'll be able to bring the BGLE coverage to an end at that point. But I am looking forward to speaking to Peter Rymill about his father and the Antarctic legacy within the family. I was going to visit Panola Station, but current events seem to be stymieing that plan. Also stymied by current events, the Australian Antarctic Festival has been postponed and along with it the associated conferences and Beaker Street. I've been working on Will Science for Food, two and a half years late already, but running to catch up, and I'll have it ready for the people who supported my efforts to get to Launceston and recertify my sea safety tickets. As part of its launch, I'll be jumping on the streaming concert bandwagon, with my own performance kicking off at 0900 Zulu on the 5th of April. And I know that being an iced coffee listener, you're smart enough to work out what that means in your particular time zone. I intend keeping it under 40 minutes and plan to cover 10 of the most influential songs that helped shape the musician that I am. Thanks to those that have donated through the PayPal account and to those that have signed up for the Patreon account. You can join them at patreon.com forward slash ice underscore coffee. Take care and appreciate your coffee.